Welcome to the STR Data Lab. Hello, and welcome to another edition of the STR Data Lab. My name is Jamie Lane, Chief Economist at AirDNA, and I'm joined today with Brooke Fouts from Ventury. Brooke, welcome to the show. Jamie, how's it going, man? Excited to be here. I've been so excited to interview you since um, I started seeing your message a few weeks ago, and I sort of con and consider you in sort of the, the realm of the data nerds. Um, <laughs> that you more than most just like to get into the data and nerd out. Is that a true statement? Absolutely. So I was actually a, a corporate finance major in college and uh, was in mortgage banking for my first kind of eight years after uh, college and somehow stumbled into vacation rentals. But yeah, I'm a total data nerd, total uh, metrics nerd, and just love all things numbers. So it's, uh, you know, you are uh, very fond in my heart and AirDNA is as well. <laughs> so for those of us that don't know what you do and what Ventry is, could you start out with just a quick overview? Yeah, yeah. So uh, again, Brooke Fouts, founder, CEO of Ventory. Ventory, we are a sales and marketing platform that helps professional short-term vacational managers grow their inventory. So that's all we do. We don't do anything on the guest side. We don't do anything uh, on operations side. We focus exclusively on supply and helping uh, property managers get more properties. That's it. So... I was listening to the um, Airbnb investor call last night, and they talked about co-hosting and how they wanted to really support co-hosting going forward. So in your mind, because I know you've probably thought of it, what is the difference between co-hosting and property management? That's a great question. Uh, <laughs> again, it's, it's I think co-hosting at this point, and this is probably not, uh, I haven't put a lot of thought into it, but to me, co-hosting is people that kind of start out and, you know, they maybe own or manage one or two homes, and then they just decide to start taking on a couple more properties. And here's the reality of it. Many professional vacational managers started as a co-host. So I know some of the old guard, like give these, you know, new, uh, you know, whippersnapper kids, you know, these co-hosts a hard time, but guess what? Most of us started that way. We didn't start with 100 properties. We didn't start with 50 properties. We started with one property. I mean, my friend Angie Leone in uh, Coconut Condos in, in uh, Maui, she started her with her own property and she couldn't sell it. So she started running it out. This was like 15, 20 years ago or something like that. And then she took on the neighbors and then the next one. So she was technically a co-host. So there really isn't much of a difference in my mind. It's To, it, to me, it's at a certain point you become... I guess, a professional short-term vacational manager, and maybe you kind of graduate from that co-host, but it's just vernacular at this point. And I think uh, most, uh, yeah, again, just to beat a dead horse here, most most professional short-term vacational managers have been doing this for a while, technically actually started as what we would call a co-host. Yeah. And I can sort of consider you an expert around the sort of growing property management company. You had a book, Zero to 500 Properties in Five Years. I read it. Yeah, oh, cool. I didn't have to pay you to do that. Thank you. <laughs> so, and then you also wrote another book that just came out called Vacation Rental Secrets. And I kind of feel like both of those are around, and one, what should you be doing when you're starting out? And then the second one was more around, for those of us that have been doing it for a long time, what did you do wrong? And what maybe, what would you have done differently? So maybe... 
if there's listeners out there that are starting their own co-hosting or maybe have started co-hosting and want to sort of professionalize it and move into starting their own property management company, could you start with maybe and two or three points of advice of maybe first, like how to start growing inventory. And then secondly, like what do people sort of regret that they didn't do one when they look back on their businesses? Yeah. So, I mean, if, if you're a new, you know, call it co-host or a new professional vacation rental manager and you want to grow your inventory, there's obviously a lot of different ways you can do it. But um, the first is obviously try to build up as many referrals as possible. That is going to be the lowest cost way to do this, but it takes time. So I'd go to the local realtor community, partner with them. But it, to me, it's what I've seen historically, what people do is they go to these realtors and they say, give me, give me, give me. And that doesn't work. You have to give before you get. And it's like, how can you provide value? How can you provide value to them? So help them by, you know, maybe creating, um, you know, rental projections for any properties that they might have. Maybe, you know, do uh, one of the best ones is uh, our mutual friend, Steve Schwab, came up with something called Leads for Life program. And what he recommends is you go to a realtor and rather than saying like, give me, give me, give me, say, look, this is how it's going to work. If you ever give me a property, think of that property as a lead magnet for you, Miss Realtor. Every single guest that walks through those doors is going to see your information. They're going to see it when they get the confirmation email. They're going to have your information says, P.S., if you're interested in buying real estate, please call uh, Jane Doe with Keller Williams. When they check into the property, there's going to be a tent card in there said, hey, if you're interested in looking at real estate and you want to buy your own vacation rental, please call Jane Doe at Keller Williams and has a little QR code maybe where they can see all the listings of the top properties that are currently on the market. But give before you get. Try to give them information. And think about it, that will end up probably becoming their number one source of new leads for new, because that's what real estate agents want, right? Is they want to get these, uh, they want to get these new buyers. So I would recommend a strategy like that. Um, and then the other one is obviously being active in the community. But if you want some real, like just active, proactive uh, steps, it would be direct mail. So in the short-term vacation rental industry, direct mail still works. It's one of the few industries where it does work. And it's not that expensive and you can get directly to your target. So you got to get a good target list. Go out there. There's a ton of list brokers out there. There's InfoUSA. There's Exact Data. There's Melissa Data. There's tons of them out there. Go get a good list broker. Purchase the list of the targets you're looking for. Two things you're looking for. You want to make sure you have absentee uh, owner records. And the key with absentee owner records is that's where the physical address and then the where the tax bill gets sent are different. And it's usually a good indicator of a real estate investor. So get that target list and then start sending direct mail to them. We actually recommend you have to follow what's called the seven key messaging building blocks and, and all that messaging. And if anybody wants to email me, uh, brooke at ventory.com, happy to send that over to them. And you can kind of build all that out. But direct mail definitely works. And if you go through the math, and we can maybe talk about this later, but uh, CAC, you know, customer acquisition cost, the numbers pencil out with direct mail and you don't need a huge response rate for actually to work. But the key with direct mail is consistency. I'll say it again. The key is consistency. It's all about you drip, drip, drip. There's something called the rule of seven, but it was, I think, established in like 1930 by the movie industry that says it takes seven impressions until someone actually will take action. So you got to drip, drip, drip and get in front of them. So sending one mailer is probably not going to get someone to convert and you shouldn't get frustrated if you send out your first set of mailers and don't get any responses from it. We see, we call it the gap of disappointment. What happens inevitably, it's a very similar to SEO. It's like, you know, you're not going to go number one in Google overnight. It takes time. Right. And the same thing with direct mail, you have to commit to it. We recommend a full 12 months and do it either every month or every other month. 
and you just want to drip, drip, drip because people are different stages of the buyer funnel, you know, and you don't, you just don't know where they are. And every touch point, just think of that as you're just nudging them across the line a little bit more. I like to, my metaphor, it's like, if you remember those, uh, those machines at arcades where you drop the quarters in and it just keeps the pushing and pushing and pushing them eventually it ends up, uh, you get a big group that ends up falling. It's the same thing here. Every time you send a marketing piece or do some touch point, you're dropping a quarter into there and you're just making that deposit. And the idea is eventually it does pay off, but it does take time for sure. So maybe we'll move along this thread or keep going along this thread and then go back to the advice for from the professionals is, so you're starting these direct mailers, you're starting to maybe bring on some new listings. What should you be tracking in terms of like knowing whether you're succeeding, knowing whether you should invest more, knowing how much you should be investing in sort of that owner acquisition strategy? Yeah. So um, I'm a big uh, nerd when it comes to these metrics and things like that. But the, the where it all starts really is called CAC or customer acquisition cost. And so funny. So I've been in the short term rental space for about 16 years. I've been in, I guess, uh, SaaS or software as a service, you know, for about four and a half, almost five years now. And I've been like totally studying like all these metrics that come with SaaS. But the funny is there's so many parallels between SaaS and short-term rentals. If you think about it, it's predictable recurring revenue, just like SaaS. You actually have pretty decent margins when it's all said and done. So there's a lot of parallels there. So um, the, the first one that I would focus on is again, that CAC, customer acquisition cost, and really understand how much does it cost you to acquire a new customer? And really take that out. Of so if you say, let's say you send a thousand, you know, direct mail pieces, and let's just say you get, let's say like a 1% response rate. So you get 10 calls. And if you can convert 20% of that, that means you just signed up two new deals on a thousand, you know, postcards. If it costs you a dollar per postcard, that means your, uh, your total spend was a thousand bucks. You got two deals. So you've got a $500 CAC. I would tell you, I will, I will take that all day long. <laughs> I will take a $500 pack all day long, especially when you get into the next metric, which is really important, which is called lifetime value or LTV to calculate. And, and I've asked this question, Jamie, probably over 500 times. And I'm going to give a little bit of explanation. I apologize for people that are not math nerds, but uh, I'm sure people listening to this probably are. So if you think about it, the value of a new property, what is it worth? Most people have never gone through the math of this. I mean, I remember I did a presentation at um, uh, a conference. I think it was at the, the Durham conference a couple of years ago. And an industry veteran, she'd been in this industry for over 30 years. She came up to me afterwards. She goes, Brooke, I've never thought of inventory this way. She, and she's been, I mean, she has a very successful, very large company, been doing this for over 30 years. So lifetime value. So again, if you look at, if you were to sign up one new property, let's just say it's worth $50,000 in uh, annual gross booking revenue per year. Now this is like owner rent. This is before taxes and fees. The average, again, averages, uh, after asking this over 500 times, about 10% of that gross booking revenue falls to the bottom line in net profits or EBITDA. So if you have a property doing 50,000 gross booking revenue times 10%, you've got $5,000 in net profits per year. Now, the best part is you don't keep a property in your rental program for one year. You keep it in your rental program for many, many years. So how do you calculate that lifetime in years? Well, some properties you might you know, churn in your first year. They might decide to sell it. Other properties you may have in your rental program for the next 20 years. You know, They've been there since you started. I mean, there's properties. I started Vantage Resort Realty back in, in 2007. There are still properties literally 
um, um, with them. Now they've the company sold twice, but have been there 17 years, 16, 17 years later. So to to understand what your lifetime is in years, you take one divided by your churn. You're, some people might be saying, Brooke, what the heck is churn? Churn is what percentage of your inventory do you lose in a given year? And again, after asking this over you know 500 times, the average always comes out to about 10%. Um, now, sometimes you know COVID, it might have been a, bit, a little bit higher because people were selling their homes and other times it might be a little bit lower, but average of the average of the averages, it comes out to about 10%. So if you take one divided by 10%, that gives you a 10-year lifetime. So if we remember from our example before, $5,000 uh, first year profits times 10 years, you get 50,000. Now you'll notice something there. There's a correlation. The gross booking revenue was 50,000. The lifetime value was $50,000 in net profits. So it's, here's the quick hack. So this is all you got to remember. This is like my little cheat sheet. So as long or like little hack, you remember from like science class and math class when they like the, you know, the rule of 72 or whatever happens to be, but anyways, rules out. So if you assuming you fall within industry averages with churn and net margins, your lifetime value is equal to your gross booking revenue. So if you go up there and sign a property doing $75,000 in gross booking revenue, you can take it to the bank. You're going to make $75,000 in lifetime value and net profits. And I would actually argue, though, those numbers are a little bit light because you probably know better than anyone, Jamie. What happens over time? Do those numbers stay flat? No, they're going to go up. It's going to consistently go up. I mean, I've got a property in Bethany Beach, Delaware. We're just about to crack $80,000 in gross booking revenue this year. Last year or, or five years ago, I bet you I was doing forty dollars or $45,000. So those numbers are actually light, but it's a great rule of thumb. So again, you remember from our example before, you have a five, you, it costs you $500 to get that property, potentially that CAC, and you're going to make $50,000 in lifetime value. I if, if you have those kind of metrics, Back up a truck of cash because you've got a literally and a consistent way to get new leads. You've got a money making machine. You've got like an ATM that's spitting out hundreds, hundred dollar bills and fifty dollar bills, and just keep doing it and replicating it. Yep. And so, if you're maybe one of our listeners that has maybe built up a portfolio of 20, 30 listings, and let's say you built it up through owning those listings, and you've built out your sort of portfolio and Maybe you're thinking about selling the assets and running it as a property management company. So, or maybe you're thinking about selling off the operation side uh, that you've sort of built out and keeping the assets. Would that be another way of sort of thinking about how to value each side? Because I, I know a lot of our listeners are very comfortable with how to value sort of the asset side. You've got cash flows. We've got the profits of the business. I know what the homes are worth. Like, is that a way to think of it too? So I may be skirting around the question, but I'm trying, it, 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 there's a point here. So, so often, I mean, I, I meet a lot of these co-hosts. I go to the STR Wealth Conference and things like that. And they feel that they can only build net worth through owning the asset. You can build a incredible portfolio. You can build up an incredible asset of just those management contracts. You see, if and when you decide to sell that business, the true value of that management company are those management contracts. It's not your guest database. It's not your trucks. It's not your office. Like you're actually the asset, the true asset that you have are those management contracts. So this is not a lesson on valuing, you know, management companies. I'll let like the pros like Jacoby Owen and Ben Edwards do that. But on average, you know, the average multiple is called anywhere between four and six times your net profit. So remember that example from before, $5,000, you know, net profit per property. 
And if you've just taken an average of five times multiple on that, that means you're looking at an average about $25,000 per contract. And I mean, so you can go out there and think about that and build up, you know, a nice little portfolio. You can build, you know, a couple million dollars in net worth. I mean, Jacoby Olin, a uh, great guy, know him really well. He said this multiple times publicly on stage, the average contract. So he did over $250 million worth of M&A transactions last year. And the average contract across that whole entire $250 million was $33,000 per contract. So if you think about that, you go out there and you sign up 100 properties this year, you just added $3.3 million in net worth. If you go out there in the next two years and add 200 properties, you just built up a portfolio potentially worth 6.6. .6. Now, I know there's a lot of assumptions there, and some people are probably screaming at me right now saying, there's no way in hell, Brooke, that's what it's worth. But if you look at just the, the historical numbers on the contracts, on the, the M&A deals that he did last year, that was the hard facts, was $33,000 was the average value per contract. So it sort of debunks. I saw a comment on Twitter recently where someone say co-hosting was like all the work and none of the like building value because you don't want oh, to real estate. Like, absolutely not. I mean, I, I would actually argue it's probably quicker and easier to build up a portfolio of co-hosting, you know, and, and management contracts than it is to actually own the assets, especially now with, you know, the rates being a little bit higher and it's a little bit harder, difficult to get financing. The quickest way you can build nor, uh, net worth again, hundred management contracts, you're looking at a value at about $3.3 million. I mean, that that is totally doable. Look, Jamie, if I can build a company from zero to 500 properties in five years, anybody can do it. I mean, I went to East Carolina. Give me a break. <laughs> <laughs> so and maybe that's a, uh, one that's, I love, I know a few people from East Carolina. It's great school. <laughs> no, no, that's East Carolina, but you know, yeah. they call it EZU for a reason, you know. <laughs> Going back to one of the other questions I'd asked was, all right, now you've built this company and you've sort of learned from the best on what people wish they would have done when they were setting up their companies, maybe from the beginning, and maybe or what they've learned throughout owning and operating a large property management. Uh, they sort of moved from co-hosting, professionalized it. So... Maybe, and I know you had your 10 points in your book, but well, or maybe one or two that maybe stand out that would resonate with someone just getting started from people that thinking back on their sort of long history of, of operating in this industry. Yeah. So I guess uh, just to set the stage a little bit on this book. So again, this book has 52 of the top uh, vacation rental managers in this industry, and they share their top 10 mistakes. And, you know, so you've got 520 mistakes and these are like industry veterans, some of the best on the planet. I mean, if you look at like, you know, uh, Clark Twitty and Steve Schwab and Ryan Dame and CJ Stam and, you know, Lino Maldonado, I mean, you, you got some of the best and the brightest in here. And what I love about the book, though, is two things, you know, they're sharing their mistakes. So you really learn from your mistakes. And then secondly, there's something about, you know, being vulnerable, some of the, you know, with these highly successful people sharing their mistakes and there's just something about that. But there was what we found, though, is after 520 mistakes there, they all bucketed pretty nicely into like 10 little buckets. But some of the ones I think um, that really resonate with me is I think, you know, chasing too many shiny objects, like stay focused. And, you know, we talk about this in the book and a couple of people mentioned it. It's like you know, there's a there's a, actually another book out there uh, uh, called Ready, Fire, Aim. And what they talk about is like, until you get to a million dollars in revenue in your business, like that should be your, your primary focus. 
And so many people are chasing all these different shiny objects. They're trying to do all these different things. And that's a mistake that almost every single person made. But really what you need to do is you need to build the business. You need to get this thing to a million dollars in revenue because you don't have a real business until you get to a million dollars in revenue. On that path to discovery, there's so many different companies out there that have uh, failed, you know, from just trying to build up all these little uh, things out there. Like, you know, and they haven't really focused on the core fundamentals of, of just actually building a business that has revenue. So stop chasing the shiny objects. Stop expanding into too many markets. You know, what we found, the most successful companies, they, they go and they get into one market. I mean, I did the same thing. It was one of the mistakes I made. So I launched in Ocean City, Maryland. You know, I started like, I think I had 10 properties and already I wanted to be like the king in New Jersey. And then I wanted to go down to North Carolina. I wanted to go to Virginia. But yet I wasn't even the best in my own market. So stay focused uh, in your kind of that original market and be the best on the planet. Then and only then can you kind of, ex you know, start expanding into different uh, markets. And okay. So I like that. And w with a lot of investors, I always sometimes hear that they move into different markets to diversify. But I, I'd see on the operation side, you've got to build a team. You've got to build and people you can rely on that are scrubbing the toilets, doing the turns, getting the work done to make that business work. So when you're thinking about fully operational, the business, like you've got to focus on one market until you've sort of built that scale and then start to think about the next area. 100%. And look, you, you can definitely diversify and you should diversify, but don't do that until you have a really solid business where it's running on its own. Because what you do is all you're doing is distracting yourself, you're distracting your team, and now you become subpar in multiple markets. Like become really, really good. Once that market is humming and you've got the lion's share of inventory in that market and you've got a good GM running that market, then you can think about expanding. And look, I'm an entrepreneur. I've you know, started four businesses. I love chasing shiny objects, but it's taken me four businesses to realize I need to put blinders on and I need to stay really, really focused. Well, the business kind of gets to critical mass and you have everything home and then you can kind of start looking at those, those other verticals and those other uh, areas and markets. Yeah. And given that we're both in sort of the, the SaaS business, and I know you mentioned some of the SaaS metrics that you've sort of learned as you sort of take inventory to where it, inventory to where it is. Are there any other sort of data points and KPIs that you're sort of focused on that inventory or got to in your vacation rental management business that you think people could be looking at or some of your favorite metrics to look at? Yeah, I mean, in both industries, it really the holy grail of all metrics in my mind is LTV to CAC. It's, you know, again, CAC is customer acquisition cost and LTV is lifetime value. In both, in, you know, both industries, if you've got a pretty solid, you know, LTV to CAC ratio, like you're good. I mean, just look at, you know, look at those numbers, look at those metrics and I'll tell you. And here's the thing. There's a reason why private equity is coming into the short-term rental space and buying and rolling up these vacational management companies because the metrics are really, really out of this world. And people have never really done that math. But if you go through there and you do that math, it's, uh, it's pretty significant. If you've got a good, obviously, marketing machine, you've got a good way of acquiring new leads and you sign up the right properties, there's not a better investment out there than you know investing back in the inventory because inventory is the really the most impactful lever that you can pull that has the greatest impact to your top line revenues and your bottom line profits and even building your net worth too. So LTV to CAC would be the, the number one uh, you know, metric and ratio that I would look in both short-term rentals and then also SaaS. Okay. So you've got one of the 
and maybe more interesting daily uh, LinkedIn pages uh, that I've seen across the industry. I feel like you've said that that sort of led to and the Vacation Rental Secrets book, sort of asking those questions and getting them answered. Your new one, though, of looking at the tech stack, what's the angle here? And and are you starting any learnings uh, that you've sort of been pulling out? Because I want I find it super interesting to see the types of businesses that people find useful. I also see it as shiny objects that maybe people get really focused on of what new tech company can solve some pain point that you have. And and it sort of blows my mind the number of companies that people list on their tech stack. So what, what have you seen there? Well, I, there's honestly, I don't have an ulterior motive on this. Uh, it, it, it was actually innocent enough. And look, I, I'm the first to admit, I just, I copy what I see in other industries. And I saw somebody else do something similar to this in a completely different vertical. They did one post and that was it. And I thought it was kind of cool. And I said, you know what? Like everybody is always asks, you know, what, you know, kind of what tech platforms are you on and things like that. I was like, this is brilliant. And I just, I pushed it out. I just asked one of my friends, I said, Hey, do you mind uh, sharing your tech stack? And I pushed it out and it went viral. I mean, people absolutely loved it. So literally for, I think, I think I'm close to like 50 days in a row now posting, uh, you know, the tech stack, like, and that's how I kind of did the top 10 mistakes. I mean, I'll, I'll tell that story in a second, but yeah, it was just I wanted. I knew people were curious about what other people were doing, and look, it. I eventually I will. I don't even know what it's going to look like, but eventually I will do some kind of consolidated report on all this information, because when you have you know fifty or plus you know of the top you know vacational managers you know sharing their tech stacks, it's it's obviously not a a real poll. It's not like something that is going to be. Um, I don't know, like it's a real indicator of kind of the the usage out there, but it's just it's a sampling of the 50 people that I happen to ask, you know what I mean? So I'm sure it's skewed in some ways, but it's really interesting, I think, to see what people are using. And what I like about it more than anything else, Jamie, is it allows a lot of people to see like some companies that maybe don't get a lot of spotlight and, and especially like some of the newer ones. And it allows you to kind of say, you know what, I've never heard of that. Let me go check them out. But to your point before, it's like, you know, be careful not to sign up with every little new shiny toy. As I think Mike Harrington said in the, uh, the the Vacational Secrets book, one of his top 10 mistakes was like, and I'm paraphrasing here, but it was something effective like, you know, really uh, signing up for all the new cool to- you know, technology platforms. And he said something to the effect of like, your team doesn't like it <laughs> and they don't, they really, really don't enjoy all the way. When, when Mike would come back from a VRMA conference, he would end up, uh, he's, hey guys, I just signed up for these three new you know, tech platforms and they're like rolling their eyes. They're like, oh, great, here we go. We got, we got to be the ones that implements this damn thing, you know? Yeah. <laughs> now I'm saying this as a you know, CEO and founder of a tech platform. So make sure you sign up for Ventory. That, I'm, our, <laughs> on, our onboarding is really easy, trust me. <laughs> um, and your but, team will never regret it. Yes, and your team will absolutely love it, exactly. So, but um, let, I just want to go back real quick to the short-term secrets, uh, or the, I'm sorry, the Vacation Rental uh, Secrets uh, uh, book and you know, kind of how it came to be. But it's like, it really started with, it was a LinkedIn post. I, again, I, I plagiarized off somebody else I saw in a different vertical and they they asked the same question and I pushed it out to four friends uh, in the industry. And Ryan Dane with Casago was the first one to reply. I pushed it out and uh, it went viral. Everyone like, you know, was commenting on it. And, and I, so for the next 52 days straight, every single morning at 6 a.m., I would post another uh, top 10 mistakes. And it, it really, what there was no intention to turn it into a book. It wasn't until I went to the Northwest uh, VRP conference and a gentleman came up to me and said, hey, Brooke, I absolutely love your post. 
I actually um, print out every one of those uh, and I put them into a three ring binder. And I'm like, so you're kind of making a book. And he goes, exactly. And I was like, I think I got to turn this thing into a book. So I had a little bit of experience from the previous book. So, and, and by the way, all 100% of proceeds go to, um, you know, philanthropy, they go to uh, short-term rental advocacy uh, efforts. Uh, I don't make a dime off the book. So go ahead and buy it and know your, your, your donations are going to a good cause and you're going to learn a ton. I mean, there's the learning lessons in there are absolutely incredible. I wish I would have had a book like this. I would have probably saved hundreds of thousands of dollars or made extra hundreds of thousands of dollars had I had a book like this in the beginning. Cause I mean, you very rarely do you get the insights of the top, you know, 52 companies and the 52 leaders in our space in, in one consolidated book. Yeah. And, and that's why it really resonated with me at, as someone that talks to the short-term rental investors every day of the lessons from a property manager, someone that's trying to manage these units at scale are almost the exact same problems that you deal with one unit or 500 units. Exactly. If, especially if you're trying to do it yourself, of which a lot of maybe the owners or investors with one to five units are, and you want to sort of protect your profit margin. And a lot of this, you're going to start doing on your own. And maybe once you to get to a certain scale, you'll feel comfortable outsourcing it or hire your company or hire a property management company. But when you're just getting going, and learning the ropes, learning what you like doing, what you don't like doing, what you do want to outsource. That's one of the things I, I actually love about some of the new property management companies is sort of offering different aspects of of property management, whether you want full service or maybe just someone to do the customer uh, communications or revenue management or or any any one of the many aspects that property management companies can do. So, Brooke, we're at the half hour. I told you we'd keep it to a half hour. Uh, so I really appreciate you coming on. Can you tell again, everyone, where to find you and where to find Venturi? Yeah, it's really easy. Venturi.com. Uh, or obviously, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. So if you follow me uh, on, on LinkedIn. I do a lot of the, you know, I, I help don't sell. So it's all about sharing uh, and giving as much information as I can. So or you can email me, Brooke, B-R-O-O-K-E at Venturi.com. Oh, Thanks so much for joining. Definitely recommend people follow Brooke. Uh, keep updated with whatever the next question he's going to be asking on, on LinkedIn because it's, it's always interesting. Brooke, it was a pleasure. Absolutely. Thanks, Danny. Take care.